Welcome to Turn the Page, the official podcast of the Syosset Public Library. Libraries Turn the Page podcast, and I'm uh, here with my co-host. Hello, I'm Jen. I'm the co-host today, <laughs> and we're really, really excited because um, this is this is one of those books that as soon as I saw it, I was like, "This is perfect. This is 100% my jam." Um, I spent 15 years in the children's department of the library. Uh, this was the type of book that I would have adored when I was a kid. This is the type of book I told a million kids to read, and um, this book is written by Rob Renzetti, who has also been involved in so many projects that were formative in my own childhood and my brother's childhood and Jen's childhood, and also in my kids' childhood, because we have both um, uh, Kid Cosmic and Gravity Falls on on repeat constantly in this house. So um, I can't wait to give them uh, the horrible bag of terrible things to read. Welcome, Rob. Tell us about this book. Hi, thank you. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, um, I, I am 200 years old. That's why I've influenced many, many generations of children. 201. Come on. Well, yeah, yeah I just turned 201, actually. <laughs> My birthday was in September. So, but you know, I like to keep it round and simple. So let's just say 200. Um, yeah, the horrible, mega, terrible things. Here it is. Yay, product placement. Um, yeah, it's my first original um, novel. I've uh, written four books for Disney publishing before this, uh, including um, uh, a couple of spinoffs from Gravity Falls, including journal number three, which I'm very proud of and was a New York Times bestseller. Um, but while I was writing all those books, I really wanted to write my own original one. And um, I came up with an idea that I really loved and I put it into action. And that's the horrible bag of terrible things, which briefly is concerns a horrible bag that pops up on uh, Zenith Maelstrom, our 11 year old uh, protagonist. It, it's on his doorstep one day. He doesn't know where I came from. He doesn't know who sent it there. Um, but he is a very, very curious kid. And he brings it inside unwisely. It seems to be empty until he pricks his uh, finger on it. And he offers a little bit of blood to it. And all of a sudden, the, the bag becomes active. This horrible or terrible thing um, comes out of it. It's like a kind of a half hairball, half spider creature, which he later dubs a slurp. And uh, the schlurp uh, hides in his house for a while and then ends up kidnapping his older 14-year-old uh, sister, Apogee, and dragging her back into the bag, illogically, because the bag's not that big. But what he discovers is that there's a whole world hiding inside the bag, uh, and that it's a portal to another dimension. And he uh, has to travel to a land called Grabog um, in an effort to find and save his sister. So this book is so much fun. And you. you have, you're welcome. And... I'm curious just to start off about how uh, the other aspects of your career have in have maybe like um, informed the writing of this because you've worked in children's media for a long time. And I'm wondering if you think that's given you a special perspective or forgave you a unique strategy when approaching writing a book for children. Um, I mean, I hate to use the word special and unique in, in reference to myself because I'm a Midwestern boy and we're inevitably humble. But um uh you know, the perspective that it gave me was that i was used to working on a deadline and in this case i kind of had to set my own deadline um i actually started this book uh i started i decided in 2018 it was my new year's resolution that i was going to get up an hour early and write this book before i had to go to my um paying job at disney television animation so 
Um, starting in 2018, I got up an hour early and I just spent an hour writing whatever I could write. Um, I'd had the, I'd had the idea and I'd made some notes on it before that, but um, I hadn't really seriously approached it. Um, and even though I had this goal for a long time of writing my own original stories, I um, I decided in 2018, like, okay, let's make this a real thing. Let's commit to it. So um, I did that. And um, by the end of 2018, I'm not sure where I was at, but I think I probably by the end I had a, I had a first draft. Uh, yeah, now that I remember, I'd like with around the holidays, I had about a first draft done. And I decided put it aside, enjoy the end of the year, just relax, come to it with fresh eyes in the next year. And so I kept working at it until I was ready to go out. I felt like I had a, um, after showing it to a couple of um, readers, uh, felt like I had something that I might want to try and send out into the world. And then um, I got my literary agent and we put it all together. And finally, uh, it got picked up after um, after just a short time on the market um, by Penguin Random House. So um the discipline that I had to instill myself, that's something I learned from, because in animation, you, your schedule is that your, your master and your nemesis and everything in between. I mean, it's, you don't have a choice. You have to be creative on a schedule. Um, so you don't have the luxury of just like letting something ruminate forever. You let it ruminate a little bit, and then you gotta, gotta put something, put pen to paper or put fingers to the keyboard and get something done. Um, so that's one way that it certainly influenced my writing um as far as my perspective and my i mean i've been writing for this audience i've been most of the shows i've worked on are, are geared towards middle grade kids um so whether i'm right well i didn't even know if i was writing a middle grade story i thought i was i was just kind of writing what i like and kind of gearing it i thought towards that audience and i was like we'll see what the publishing thinks of this <laughs> you know because i know what a cartoon for kids are supposed to look like but i wasn't sure what a book for kids if it was going to be about the same thing um and luckily, my the literary agent, um, uh, Ruben Pfeffer, um, he he loved it, wanted to sign me. Um, you know, Penguin Random House loved it. They seemed to think I'd hit the target. So hopefully the kids will agree. So first of all, I have to say, like way back when we started this conversation, you know, like 201 years ago. Yes. <laughs> uh, you, <laughs> you, you described the book and you said briefly and part of me was like was that a bag pun or <laughs> um, but probably but not uh, not on purpose <laughs> coincidence but what you know one thing I wanted to say um, especially about this book and just what you were just talking about um, mm -hmm. about writing a book that you would like and also writing for middle grade kids you know, I think something that comes out in the horrible bag of terrible things um, and also just, you know, in all of the um, animation writing that you've worked in is that, yeah, okay, so you're writing a book or a series or something that's mm -hmm. for middle grade kids, but you're not talking down to them. It's enjoyable to you. Like, you know, I think there was um, something that I'd read a long time ago, and I think I've read this from a lot of different people. And also, um, you know, just in general, I think um, DJ McHale had said it about, um, what was that show? Um, the, the Are You Afraid of the Dark? You know, like a kid mm -hmm. will always, and maybe I'm not DJ, I'm sorry if I'm misquoting you, but, you, but the idea is, and this is also dealing with children's horror, which this is, um, is that a kid will know when you're talking down to them. You know, if a kid is reading a book and you are writing something and in your mind, I think it's this is for children. A, a kid will pick up on that in a second. There's a wry um, humor. There's some bite literally to this book. And, um, you know, it's funny and scary and it's intriguing and it's enjoyable to me as an adult, uh, which is, you know, like uh, another thing. 
about um about this genre is that it should be enjoyable to all because you know you want your kid to come home and tell you about this great book that you read. And it's got to sound interesting and wild and wacky. Uh, so this book absolutely hits all of those notes. Um, I have to ask, so why Zenith and Apogee as names for the kids? Great. Um, well, thank again, thank you. Thank you for all the that litany of compliments you just uh, unleashed on me. Um, yeah, um, Zenith and Apogee. Okay, so Part of that, I don't have any kids of my own, um, believe it or not. Um, I, I think I never really, truly grew up, and that's why I don't have a problem writing for kids, uh, just to talk about all the points you just made. But um, I don't talk to them. I just talk, I write something that I think I would like, and hopefully they will too. Um, but Zenith and Apogee, the names the names are kind of a gentle. There were a couple of things. They're, they mean the same thing, kind of. They kind of have the same definition. Um, that's one thing about them. Um uh the more superficial answer was like i have a lot of friends who've named their kids very silly names um you know that like the the, the epitome you know like the end you know the you know the, the you know the the culmination of all western civilization is what they're trying to get across with their name their names for their kids so i thought zenith and apogee were appropriate they were kind of you know full of self-importance when they were the, their parents um when they named them um because they both mean the height or the, you know, the, the climax or whatever of things. Um, but I also like the, I like the kind of the A and Z of it. The fact that Apogee is at the beginning, Z is at the end, uh, Z is at the end. Um, that there is in the book, there is this, um, there is this struggle, especially from Zena's perspective about like, he doesn't want to be, he doesn't want his sister be the boss of him. He wants to be, he died to be the older sibling. He wants to be not bossed around anymore. And he really, he pushes up against everybody telling him what to do, especially Apogee, because they have a prior history where when she was a little bit younger, they were, as Apogee would put it, thick thieves. They were always getting into trouble together. And then something changed. She became a teenager and something changed. And he's both regretting, he's missing their old relationship and angry and resentful that now he seems to have another parent in the house besides his mom and his dad. Um so there were a few different reasons why I did that. The, the first was that kind of superficial reason of kind of gently, gently poking fun at my friends and what they were naming their kids. And then I just thought that the the, the meanings of the names um, also helped them kind of tell the story. I was really interested in what you just said about, um, you know, the sibling dynamics. And I was thinking about that in terms of what you had just said about, you know, uh, creating children's media because like, yourself, you know, you haven't grown up just a little bit, you know, in there. Right. And I feel like that's really important. And I think they're linked because, you know, the real, the intensity of like sibling dynamics is something that as you age, you tend to like kind of forget about because age kind of equals you out after a while, you know, like yeah. there's as big a difference between like a 32 year old and a 35 year old is like a seven and a 10 year old. So do you think like that little bit of not growing up is necessary, you know, in order to like, remember those things that you don't really spend as much time thinking about as a grown up? I mean, I think so. I mean, look, I'm, I'm the adult I am, so I can't judge other adults, but my let's judge them for a minute. I tend to think a lot of adults forget what it's like to be a child and, and that's maybe purposeful, but also lazy um so that when they do name their kids something silly or really stupid they don't realize your kid will be mocked on the playground for the silly stupid name you just gave them. <laughs> 
you know, it, it sounds unique to you. And you had a great moment of expressing your own ego by naming your kids something ridiculous. But now they have to live with that for the rest of their life until they can decide that they want to be called something different. And I mean, I never forgot. I was luckily I wasn't mocked too hard, but I had my moments when I was teased throughout school all the time. Um, it's horrible. Like, you know, being the center of attention in that negative way and getting laughed at by a bunch of people. How horrible. Um, so, I mean, I would think I would help with that if I were if I had ever become a father that I would have done had approached things with a little bit more empathy for what kids have to go through but who knows maybe if I had become a father I would have forgotten how to become a child and and uh, I would have reverted to my father I certainly see my tendencies my father uh, even without having a kid of my own where you know the, the the worst aspects of his personality sometimes come out and like wanting everything neat and clean around the house when it's not really that necessary and those kind of uh what I would say, uh, adult instincts that don't really serve children so well. Um, okay, I think I, I've kind of left, uh, reached the end of that answer. <laughs> if I, I kind of got lost. <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit about just in general. So first of all, um, why a bag? Why a bag? Uh, well, two reasons. There's one. There's a couple. One, um, it, my wife came up with it. but She came up with it in this way. Uh, speaking about keeping the house clean again, we don't do a very good job of that. We're both pack rats, especially my wife. We both hoard hoard every piece of paper that comes in the house for the most remote reasons. Um, but every once in a while, we'll get a mania and we'll decide we're going to clean up. Okay, so we're going to clean and straighten everything up. And usually we do a good job of that. Sometimes we do kind of a slapdash fast job of that. And we just like toss all our old, all our old phone bills or credit card bills into a shopping bag and throw it out of the view of whoever's coming over or whatever reason we've decided we have to clean up. Um, so one of those bags existed and it was sitting there glowering at us from the corner and she started calling it the horrible bag of terrible things. And I just love, she's got a, you know, she's good with phrases. And I just, I just remembered that phrase and really clicked into it and it didn't really mean anything for a while, but then eventually I came up with the story that would make sense with the title. Um, the other reason is I was really a huge fan of the 1960s Felix cartoons, which showed on my local UHF station when I was a kid. And in that, cartoon felix had this bag of tricks which the horrible bag very much is shaped like like this is the this is the this silhouette is the shape of um felix's bag of tricks the, the this design's a little bit more disturbing um his is yellow with a nice little 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 pattern on it but um that bag was just it was like he could reach into it get anything he needed it would i think it transformed it was um just i just really loved that as a kid so that's i've in fact i've got a magnet on my fridge to this day of felix holding his bag of tricks um, so I just have always loved that concept. So it was the two of them kind of combined into a kind of a funhouse mirror version of um, the bag of tricks that Felix has. This is a bag of um, not things, not things that are good tricks, I guess, but not treats, not not treat like tricks, but bad tricks inside this bag. Was there uh, other children's media from your childhood that you feel like was really formative in either like your sensibility or your approach to your work? I mean, I consumed so many cartoons as a kid. Um, I was a huge fan of them. Um, obviously, I grew up to work <laughs> in the cartoon biz, but um, I also was a pretty avid reader. Um, I I read a lot of sci-fi. Um, one of the things that's definitely influential, though, wasn't wasn't really a favorite of mine, but I, Alice in Wonderland was a huge influence on on the world inside the bag of Ungerbog and kind of the absurd the absurdity of it all. Um, which we I explore further in the the sequel that'll be out next summer, um, which is called the Twisted Tower of Endless Torment. Um, there's a courtroom scene 
in that um, story, which is very much uh, inspired by the courtroom scene from Alice. Um, you know, um, I love that kind of stuff. Probably the uh, one of the biggest things that I feel like I would love to live up, I would love my sensibility to be on par with Douglas Adams in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Once I discovered that when I was in my, first I saw the PBS version, which was really, really, really silly and backwards in terms of the sci-fi it was very very um primitive but i loved the sense of humor i discovered the books and i just uh swallowed them whole um through my teen years and i've gone back to them a couple uh a couple times um i read i read the, i reread the first one at least every about every 10 years if not more so um i just loved his um sense of humor and absurdity and all that and um you know so that was um that was a big touchstone for me as well What about children's um, horror? I mean, you can you can kind of uh, say, you know, you know, talking about like old things that um, influenced you. Like for me, I, I must say this a million times, like 5,000 times a year when we interview people. But like for me, I feel like when I was a kid, all children's media was horror to some extent. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, sure. A hundred percent. And then like going back to um, Alice in Wonderland, there was this really bizarre miniseries that was on TV with all like it was an all star cast. And mm -hmm. I think like Sammy Davis Jr. was in it and Carol Channing and uh, Ringo Starr. But like there was this scene with the Jabberwocky and it was so scary that I cried so much. And my parents like we're like, you don't have to watch the next part because they did Alice in Wonderland, <laughs> then Alice through the looking glass. And I thought I was going to watch it, and I did, and it was I all wish I had seen that. I wish I had seen that version. I never saw oh, it. I mean, yeah, I don't know if it's horrible. available. <laughs> it sounds <laughs> it's wonderfully really, horrible. It's so creepy. There's this well, one thing that I always remember with Carol Channing. She's yeah. the white queen, and like she turns into the sheep, which I believe happens in the books too. But she's like, "Oh, I'm feeling much better." <laughs> and like just the whole transition gave me nightmares. <laughs> but um, I digress. All children's media was horror yeah. in like the seventies, eighties, and early nineties. Well, I mean, I'm a child of the eighties, and uh, yeah, yeah, you know, I, I I started off as a real scaredy cat when I was super young. I didn't want to watch any horror, and then I kind of flipped around. Um, and uh, my entryway was uh, this collection of um, short stories by um, Edgar Allan Poe um, that my mom gave to me while I was in the hospital. I had um, had this I had this surgery between it was between seventh and eighth grade, um, and uh, I was just bored in the hospital. And she gave me these short stories to read. I loved, 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 loved it. Before that, I'd seen her read like a million trashy and and quality horror paperbacks throughout my childhood like i saw i saw the uh, first uh, stephen king short story collection night shift i saw her read that with the original bandaged hand with the eyes coming through the bandages on the cover freaked me out just seeing it across the room like i wanted nothing to do with that book um that you know she read flowers in the attic and stephen king and all that kind of stuff so it was around but i was like was not a fan of it at first and then she kind of converted me with poe um and so like you know, I watched a million crappy horror movies on on local television again, like on a Saturday afternoon when it's not really scary in the middle of the afternoon and it was safe to watch horror movies. That was kind of how I kind of geared up. And then I discovered Hitchcock, which isn't really horror, but horror adjacent. But like, you know, I saw I, um, uh, in, our, in the kind of early mid 80s um, Vertigo and, and there were like five films that got rediscovered, like rediscovered and uh, restored and re-released theatrically. And we went and saw them all and uh, I loved them. I saw, again, I saw, I encountered Psycho one day 
um, on afternoon television. I was actually watching the beginning of it, beginning of it, and my mom was leaving to go out for the day. And she's like, "Oh, this is a good one. You're going to really like this." And I watched it. And then at the end, after all the surprises happened, she came back. I'm like, "What are you doing? Why didn't you warn me about this film?" Because it was a little bit intense for me at that age. And she's like, "Oh well, I, if I if I warned you about it, I would have spoiled it for you." I'm like, "Well, maybe you should have spoiled it for me. Maybe I should have waited a couple more years till I saw this." <laughs> but like, so I had this kind of, you know, uh, there was, I was definitely kind of had this love hate relationship for a horror for a while. At first it was hate. That was kind of love hate. And then it eventually became just full, full on love. So uh, um, there's nothing like big Poe is probably the turning point for me. Um, um, but that was, you know, I, after that, I was just a, a, a undiscerning consumer and I still am to this day. <laughs> Yeah, as you were speaking, I was thinking that like, um, you know, horror is kind of like this, like, weird tension between like, revulsion, like being pushed away and like mm -hmm. curiosity and being pulled in. And I think like, that is something that like, kids are super attuned to because they're naturally very, very curious. And yes. like they're into, you know, gross and weird stuff sometimes. So yeah, is that something that you're attuned to when you write like the sort of balance between like, the the kind of repulsive elements and the curious elements, you know, I try to be, I mean, you know, the, the, I don't think this is ruins too much, but, um, Preble, the gargoyle who becomes Zenith's like number one ally in Grabog, she makes a deal with him and she'll only help him if he, if he gives her access to his earwax, which she calls grits. So she's feasting, uh, she's sitting on his shoulder, feasting out of his ear the whole time that she's kind of guiding him through on his adventures. And, I don't I remember coming up with that, but I remember just like I don't want to be gross just for the sake of being gross, but I love this because it kind of it it served a character purpose and it kind of serves a story purpose. Like there's why would this random creature just all of a sudden start helping him? Um and I felt like he needed a guide. We needed someone with knowledge of the place. So, you know, it wasn't just constant like um, you know, filling in information, but you know, filling in information in an interesting way when necessary. So um I was very happy to have that. And then I had to come up with a way, something new for the sequel, which I won't, which I won't, um, <laughs> which I won't blow. I'm writing the third book now and I really don't have an equivalent and I got to figure that out, but I don't know if I'll get it on this first pass, maybe on the second pass. <laughs> but yeah, no, I like, I like a little bit of gross out because I think kids enjoy that. Um, um, I, you know, I like the kids to be scared and drawn in. I like them. I'm, I'm always, I'm never, I never don't do anything that doesn't have a sense of humor to it. I just, that's hard for me to, stomach um it's hard for me to stomach as a consumer actually honestly i don't believe the worst thing to me is any kind of movie that takes it so so seriously that the people inside it don't seem real because as far as my own experience in this life has been even at the worst my lowest moments in my life you you have to laugh i mean i'm and i don't mean that just like you should because it's good for you i mean as a human i think you something in you makes you laugh even at your darkest moments because that's just who, what we are and who we are at least that's who I am. So when I consume media where some something so dreadfully serious, whether it's a drama, action, horror, or whatever, and there's no there's no moment where somebody stops and goes and looks around and laughs with someone else and goes, "This is really screwed up, isn't it?" Like then I don't feel like I'm watching humans. I feel like I'm I can see the storyteller thinking they think they're so important, so this this is going to be serious, and I feel like I feel like I'm in tune with my kid, but I feel like that's a very adolescent point of uh, a point of view that I feel like doesn't serve storytelling that like moment in your own development where you realize 
the world is horrible and you're horrible and everything's horrible. And hopefully you get past that to some degree, but like, you know, that like coming from that real super serious point of view of like a 13, 14 year old where everything is so important and so serious and you can't laugh at yourself or the world around you. I, I, I'm, I hope, you know, hopefully everybody grows out of that because it's just a, it's a bad place to be in my opinion. I wanted to also just kind of talk about like, um, just all of your creatures and you know you were talking about creeble and uh, the earwax and about slurp before i got mm -hmm. like a real uh labyrinth vibe from this story as well talk about children's media which is really horror but also also yeah. because david bowie uh yeah. labyrinth. you know i i really like i got that sense of um just perfect weird that fit together so nicely with it um Thank can you. you just talk a little bit about you, you know the different the different creatures that zenith and apogee encounter in grabag and also uh the name grabag is just like perfectly like henson i loved it so much <laughs> <laughs> well thank you i mean it's 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 not it's not you don't have to go deep to figure out that grabag is a grab bag um <laughs> you know and that's like that was wait what I named, I named it. I know. Well, sorry. I don't mean to spoil anything for you. The spoil the mystery, but I, I named it that because I wanted to allow myself to throw what any, anything in there that I wanted, you know? So we have, there's like Raggedy Albert, who's a giant seven foot tall living ragdoll. Like, well, how does that relate to the gargoyles or the slurps or the other creatures we meet? Uh, we meet. And the answer is, I don't know. They just all, they're just all in there. That's what this world is like. Um, and I don't worry too much about like how where everything came from or how the origins and all that are. So it's like this is what this is, you know. Similar to to uh, you know in Alice in Wonderland, you can have you know, talking walruses and living um, you know living um, card cards, um, you know, like all the different things that you can have. Like let's just have them. Um, so um, you know, I didn't think I didn't try and make anything too. Um, too uh, consistent in a way that wasn't fun or helpful. Um, the one thing I did, one touchstone I did kind of um, try and relate things back to is the fact that it is a bag and that the like the world is like sewn together, like the stitches in the bag actually in Grabag, there are stitches in the ground, that this is something that somehow has been put together by someone. So like having a ragdoll who's also sewn together, I felt like, oh, that that works, that, that can work as a character. And um, the collectory, which is this giant, um, tree-like thing which is actually the kind of the metaphysical structure that runs the whole joint in a way is you know it's got it's got is kind of looks like it's maybe some sort of weird craft device put together by someone who 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 sews or is a tailor or something for a living so those kind of things I kind of I tried to um, pluck those things as best I could but again I didn't worry about like doing that with everything like the gargoyles don't relate to that in any way and some of the other creatures don't really relate to that those themes um, in any way. And I get a little further away from it in the second book as well, um, as I've kind of fill out the world. Um, but um, yeah, I just, um, I mean, it just mostly was instinct, you know, it was like, again, I was like, just kind of like pulling from the stuff like Labyrinth and, and like a return to Oz, which is incredibly creepy uh, movie. Um, you know, like I just kind of have my own taste and I decided to follow my own taste and like, hopefully things, when things when I think of something and I go, oh, that's funny or oh, that's creepy, then I know like, yeah, 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 that's good. Then go follow that, <laughs> you know. Um, and the, when I when I can't come up with something, but I know I kind of have to get from point A to point B, I just go like, okay, this is this will work for now, and I'll I'll make it I'll make it something more when I come back to it on the on the second pass. 
Um, so without, you know, spoiling too much, but can you talk at all about like what is to come in this trilogy and sort of like what's in store for readers who check out this first one? Sure. Um, okay. Let's try and talk about it in a non-spoiler way. So <laughs> things change at the end of the first book. Things don't go back to exactly how they were, though, the though you know, things are resolved, um, but it leads to further adventures in Grabog. And um, they're always tied up in kind of uh, Senath and Apogee's relationship is always kind of central to what is going on. That's the emotional core of the the whole trilogy. And, um, you know, basically Zenith thinks he knows what he's getting into because he's had one adventure in Grabog, but he explores different aspects of the world. He, he, he much more gets into the, the, the kind of settlements of Grabog, both small villages and, in in larger uh larger metropolises though and metropolis might not be quite right for what happens but um he kind of explores the culture and the civilization of grabag a little bit more in the in the second book and then we get a little bit more of the natural world in the third book um and um you know so like um there's the scalding sea is mentioned um in the first book and he actually spends some time in the scalding sea in the third book um, and there are a few things that I've seeded in the first book that come to fruition in the second and third book, like um, the Inquisitor is a character that men is mentioned in the first book. And in the, in the second book, the Inquisitor is the one who is supervising the trial that um, is happening. Um, and it should be probably no surprise to anybody that Zenith is the one who is on trial. Um, so there are consequences that, you know, from his what he does in the first book that travel not just only travel through his relationship with Apogee, but that affect Grabog and make him a known figure in Grabog and, and a, a, a despised figure in Grabog. Um, so when he goes back the second time, he's not just an anonymous weirdo like all the other weirdos in there, but he is, he is known. He is known as the dread outlaw maelstrom and he is um, sought after. So he the stakes are kind of raised. He can't just wander around. He has to be more surreptitious as he tries to... Um, uh, fulfill his second mission in Grabog without uh, giving away too much about what he's actually doing. Um, uh, and the third book, like I'm, which I'm figuring out right now, is a little bit. I have a little less less to say about it, but um, it is the uh, again things are topsy turvy at the end of the second book, and things need to be resolved for the third adventure. So um, we shall see what comes of that. But uh, like I said, he spent some time in the Scalding Sea Creek with some strange sea creatures, and um, and then um, you know. We visit some old friends, make some new friends, as we do um, um, in book two as well. There's certainly we see we see Kreebel again. Kreebel continues to be his ally, um, but he uh, but things spin off in a different direction than they did in the, in, in the first book. Thank you so much. This was super fun. I do hope that you'd consider talking to us again about maybe the other books. I would talk to you anytime you want to talk to me. <laughs> I love to talk, <laughs> as you probably can tell. <laughs> awesome especially i'm talking about myself even though i'm a <laughs> humble midwest boy i've gotten over that <laughs> i've been forced to talk about myself and now i'm used to it thank you so much thank you it was a pleasure talking to you both uh so once again this is syosset libraries turn the page podcast i'm jessica i was one of your hosts my other host was is again goodbye <laughs> and our guest today was rob ranzetti author of The Horrible Bag of Terrible Things, available and now. We, <laughs> and we are going to close this chapter of Turn the Page. It's time to close this chapter of Turn the Page. Join us for the next episode.